Good morning. I'm doing well. All right. So Ezra and Nehemiah. This is this is going to be fun. Like, I'm really excited about it. We've not been in the in the Old Testament as as a body uh, in a while, and there's just a lot here. Um, and so just a little bit of some intro about it. Some. Some things, and we're going to post a fun video later out on the on the Facebook site to kind of give you an overview of of Nehemiah. It's about an eight or ten minute long video that you'll hopefully enjoy. That you can catch on to that. Um, but but we got to kind of we we're doing Ezra and Nehemiah together in one swoop uh, over about a sixteen to eighteen week period or so, just depending upon how much we think we can we can do. But it's it's in the original old Hebrew text. This was all one scroll. It's one continuous story through. And so that's why we're looking at it that way. And I, I just want to say some things like before we dive right into Scripture today, l- let me kind of preface the whole sermon series of Ezra and Nehemiah by, by letting you know that there are going to be times when you're going to get to laugh quietly, snicker quietly, chuckle, whatever, to yourselves uh, as Chris and I are going to struggle through reading through some Hebrew names. Right. Um, I also fully understand that those long lists of Hebrew names are where a lot of people start to struggle to make it through their annual read through the Bible plans. I get that. Um, that's a that's a spot where you bog down. Like who begat who? What? How many? There's numbers and now there's names and I can't pronounce that. It's tough. I get it. Um, I'm going to tell you. I'm going to say them wrong, but I'm going to say them wrong as confidently as I can, <laughs> just to kind of move through. Right, but why? Why in the world would we in a sermon series read all of these names? Why would we do that? Right? Well, we believe that all scripture is God breathed or is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be completely equipped for every good work. And we get that from from Second Timothy three, sixteen and seventeen. Right? And as a body of believers, we claim this biblical truth that all scripture is God breathed. And if we claim that, we must believe that. And if we believe that, then we know that it applies even to those long lists of Hebrew names that are found in the Old Testament. Because they are in Scripture, and they are a part of Scripture, and they are Scripture. Right? Even the stuff that does not excite us, or the stuff that immediately captures our attention in Scripture, is still the Word of God. And because it is the Word of God, it is profitable for the people of God to be made complete and equipped for every good work. Now, having said all of that, let's hear the Word of the Lord. Take a look. We're going to be in Ezra chapters 1 and 2 today. It's a lot, um, but I promise it's going to be okay. So here we go. In the first year of of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the Word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up in the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation through all his kingdom and also put in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all kingdoms of the earth and has charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whomever is among all of his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold and goods with beasts besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. 
Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, and everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided with them with vessels of silver and gold, with goods, with beasts, with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Shezbazar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and a thousand other vessels. All the vessels of gold and silver were 5,400. All these Shezbazar bring up, all these did Shezbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. Chapter 2. Now these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away captive to Babylonia. They returned to Jerusalem and Judea, each to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Sehariah, Realiah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mizpar, Bigvi, Rehem, and Baanan. The numbers of the men of Israel, the sons of Parosh, 2,172. The sons of Shephatiah, 372. The sons of Arah, 775. The sons of Pahath Moab, namely the sons of Jeshua and Joab, 2,812. The sons of Elam, 1,254. The sons of Zatu, 945. The sons of Zakai, 760. The sons of Bani, 642. The sons of Bibai, 623. The sons of Asgad, 1,222. The sons of uh, Adonikam, 666. The sons of Bigvi, 2,056. The sons of Adin, 454. The sons of Atar, namely of Hezekiah, 98. The sons of Bazai, 323. The sons of Jorah, 112. The sons of Hashem, 223. The sons of Gibar, 95. The sons of Bethlehem, 123. The men of Netophah, 56. The men of Anathoth, 128. The sons of Asmaveth, 42. The sons of Kiriath Arim, uh, Chipparah, and Bererath, 743. The sons of Rama and Geba, 621. The men of Michaelmas, 122. The men of Bethel and Ai, 223. The sons of Nebo, 52. The sons of Magbish, 156. The sons of the other Elam, 1,254. The sons of Harim, 320. The sons of Lod, Hadid, and Ono, 725. The sons of Jericho, 345. The sons of Sana'a, 3,630. I need a little breath, sorry. <laughs> the priests, the sons of Jedediah, the house of Jeshua, 973. The sons of Emmer, 1,052. The sons of Pashpar, 1,247, the sons of Harim, 1,117, or I'm sorry, 1,017. The Levites, the sons of Jeshua and Kadmiel, the sons of Hodaviah, 
74. The singers, the sons of Asaph, 128. The sons of the gatekeepers, the sons of Shalom, the sons of Ater, the sons of Talman, the sons of Echub, the sons of Hatita, the sons of Shobai, in all, 139. The temple servants, the sons of Ziha, the sons of Hashupah, the sons of Tabaoth, the sons of Keros, the sons of Saiah, the sons of Padan, the sons of Lebanah, the sons of Hagabah, the sons of Achab, the sons of Hagag, the sons of Shamlai, the sons of Hanan, the sons of Gidel, the sons of Gahar, the sons of Riahai, the sons of Rezin, the sons of Nakoda, the sons of Gazim, the sons of Uzzah, the sons of Pasiah, the sons of Basai, the sons of Asna, the sons of Min- Miunim, the sons of Nephism, the sons of Bakbuk, the sons of Hakaf- Hakufa, the sons of Harur, the sons of Baz- Bazluth, the sons of Mahida, the sons of Harsha, the sons of Barkos, the sons of Sisera, the sons of Tima, the sons of uh, Nizia, and the sons of Hadapha. The sons of Solomon's servants, the sons of Sotai, the sons of uh, Hasaphareth, the sons of Peroda, the sons of Ja'alah, the sons of Darkan, the sons of Gedel, the sons of Shephatiah, the sons of Hatil, the sons of Pekareth Hazabayim, the sons of Ami. The temple servants and the sons of Sir Solomon's servants were 392. The following were those who came from Telmalah, Telharsha, Shareb, Adan, and Emmer. Though they could not provide their fathers or could not prove their fathers' houses or their descent, whether they belonged to Israel, the sons of Deliah, the sons of Tobiah, the sons of Nakoda, six hundred fifty-two. Also, the sons of the priests, the sons of Habaliah, the sons of Hakaz, the sons of Baraziah, who had taken a wife from the daughters of Baraziah the Gileadite, and was called by their name. They sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but were not found, and so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food until there should be a priest to consult Urim and Thummim. The whole assembly was together was 42,360, besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337. And they had 200 male and female singers. The horses were 736, their mules were 245, their camels were 435, and their donkeys were 6,720. Some of the heads of families, when they came to the house of the Lord, that is in Jerusalem, made freewill offerings for the house of God to erect it on its site. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury the work of 61,000 derricks of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priests' garments. Now the priests, Levites, and some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants, lived in their towns, and all the rest of Israel in their towns. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you so much for this day that you've given to us. I thank you for your word. I thank you for even just seeing the history when we read through the names and how that glorifies you. I pray, Lord, that as we dive into this sermon series on Ezra and Nehemiah, that we we are reminded that it's not about history, that it's not about that, but it's about your message of salvation, your message of redemption, and it's about your glory. And I pray, Lord, that as we 
we study this word, that you would bring that to our minds all the time. Father, let this honor and glorify you. Uh, Put me aside so that your words may be proclaimed. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, so I'm going to do a quick introduction here to the book of Ezra. It takes place over anywhere between about a 70 to 100 year time span. Uh, It is in this time span that the Israelites are returning from their Babylonian exile, right? It directly follows all of the events of 1st and 2nd Chronicles, uh, and it's the fulfillment of the prophecies of Jeremiah as well as the prophecies of Isaiah. It's really closely connected, as we're talking about Ezra, it's really closely connected to Nehemiah in the ancient Hebrew text. Like I said, it's one scroll, one book. Ezra is about rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem and rebuilding worship in Jerusalem. Nehemiah is about rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem, just for a broad overview. And both books are about how our sovereign God, who in his perfect timing, keeps his promises and draws his people into himself. That's kind of the big focus we're going to be taking a look at. Ezra chapters 1 and 2 shows us God fulfilling his promises and starting what many scholars sometimes will call a new exodus or the second exodus as the Hebrew exiles begin to return to Israel, right? Um, James Hamilton, who is, is an author of one of the commentaries we're kind of looking at, refers to the universe as God's great theater uh, and, and the earth is his, his stage and, and on God's stage his glory is put on display for all to see. And instead of actors, he uses real-life people to display his glory and his might. And, and Ezra and Nehemiah as books illustrate that kind of example very, very well. Because in this particular act of, of the cosmic drama that God is directing, we see God using this small and weak people, Israel, to show off his greatness. Right? They had failed him repeatedly from the beginning of time. And he patiently showed them love and he patiently showed them mercy. But there was a limit. Right? Every parent knows that, that you can love and love and love on a kid, and you can be merciful and you can be patient, but there's going to be that day. There's going to be that one moment. Well, they had had that. And when that limit was reached, uh, God's people were evicted from the promised land that he had given to them. Right? You got to kind of be, we, we remember that, that God had given them that land, that land of Canaan. Israel had been given them that, and, and he evicted them from that. And he had put them in exile. In that exile, um, we, we see that the Israelites in the beginning of Ezra, that they had been, that's where they're at. They're in that exile where God had evicted them from their, their homeland. And they'd been exiled for about 70 years at this point. So about a generation or so, there may have been some very old folks who remembered being in Israel uh, at the time of, of this second exodus. Um, but they were now there 70 years, and they were under King Cyrus of Persia. And God stirred the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to release them back to their own land that they may rebuild God's temple. And that's where we're at. And what's neat is when we look at Ezra 1.1, it's an example of Proverbs 21.1 in action. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. And he turns it wherever he wills, right? Now, when I see this, and I see what it says in Ezra 1.1, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of King Cyrus, or Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put in writing that God is doing this. 
Seeing this gives me this this hope, and, and it's really a needed and refreshing hope, right? That no matter what happens politically, whether it's here, whether it's abroad, no matter what's going on, God is in charge of all of that. That God has it. These, these political players, these, these world leaders, wherever they're at, they're still players and actors on God's stage. And he's the director. Going back to, to Hamilton's kind of analogy of what's happening, right? They will not do anything that has not been part of the script since the beginning of time. They don't really ad-lib here. There's, there's no, no improvisation. And all of it, as ugly as it may look for us at the time, all of it is for God's glory. The bad guys still have a part, but they're just God's actors. And, and what's happening here in Ezra 1.1 is, is this fulfillment of the word of God. God is directing that. Jeremiah, through the Holy Spirit, prophesied that the exile would last 70 years. And then Babylon would be punished and Judah would be restored. Cyrus's decree is the first of several events that fulfill that prophecy. And, and, and I just look at this, and we haven't even gotten past Ezra 1.1, and what we see here is, is that God is perfect, and in his perfect sovereignty, he fulfills his promises. God is, is perfectly sovereign and perfectly fulfilling his promises, and we're still in the first verse. In verses 2 through 4, we see Cyrus's decree. He calls God the Lord God, the God of heaven. Now, this is a really common name given to God by a lot of non-Jews. Uh, it, it's really kind of diplomatic language more than it is worshipful language. And, and it's very diplomatic language. It's typical of the era and it's typical of Cyrus's position. But it still holds true, right? He can say that. The Lord, the God of heaven. It's not a false name even though Cyrus may not intend it to be a worshipful name, right? And it also shows us that the message of the book of Ezra, right, that, that he is the God of all these things and he is in control. And in verse 3, we see that Cyrus is not really a true believer in the one true God as he refers to him as the God who is in Jerusalem. He would have also been sending back other folks to, to do other things in other places. Jerusalem's got a focus because this is the, the, the Bible, and that would be a focus here. But in, in other things, we see him sending other people back to other places that had high spots of worship. He acknowledges that he, being the one true God, is the God of Israel. And he's been charged by God to rebuild the temple and allow the people of God to return to true worship. And this decree is more about the temple, and it's really more about the worship than it is about freeing exiles. Cyrus is a conquering king. He's not as concerned about freeing exiles as he is looking good politically. Well, God has stirred up in his heart that a way to look good politically is to restore worship in Jerusalem for these people you have pulled out of there. And he encourages all the Jews to return to Jerusalem. And then, and then he does this interesting thing, right? He obliges all of the people of the empire to supply the returning Jews with anything they need for the journey for the rebuilding of the temple. And, and, and we see that God stirs the hearts of the people to do that. And, and this part of the decree is, is kind of why, why it helps us see why this return from exile is sometimes called the second exodus. Right? As, as the people of Israel left Egypt in the first exodus, they plundered Egypt. Right? They took all the silver and gold and the livestock of the Egyptians on their way out. 
And then Moses used those materials plundered from Egypt to build the tabernacle. Solomon built the temple from materials that David had plundered through his conquests and his military might. The temple will be rebuilt with materials taken from the nations. And that's a beautiful thing to think about, how God is providing that and that the temple being built from material from all of the nations does remind us that, that God is a God of all the nations. And that he wants all the nations to see him and to worship him. But it's also a, a picture of how Jesus has set us free from the captivity of sin. And he has distributed gifts as he builds the temple of the Holy Spirit, his church, and equipping us to do the work he's called us to do. In verse 5, we see these heads of families, these clans or extended families, right? And the priests, and they're all stirred in the same way, right? The Spirit has stirred in them the same way that Cyrus was stirred to respond to that decree that he had written. The tribes of Benjamin, Judah, and Levi make up the kingdom of, of Judah prior to the exile, and we see them making that trek now back home. And this we see here is the influence of God in the lives of man. God has done all the stirring. This is not of the people, this is of God. Right? It, it would do well for us to ask God. It would do us very well to ask God to stir our hearts the way he has stirred the hearts of Cyrus and the way he has stirred the hearts of the Israelite exiles. We should want our hearts to be stirred to build his church and to further his kingdom more and more. We should pray for our hearts, uh, for the world leaders to be stirred so that God's glory may be declared through his people that are under their influence. Because our God does amazing things like we're seeing here. And we should want to be a part of the amazing work of our God. As we're looking at Ezra 1.4, right? We see Ezra 1.4. Uh, let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods, with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of the God that is in Jerusalem. Then we see Ezra, I'm sorry, I said Cyrus 1 4, I meant Ezra 1 4. And then we see Ezra 1 6. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. So these returning Israelite exiles gained from, from Babylonia on their way to Jerusalem. They, 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 they got all this stuff. It, it's almost like instead of a plundering like what happened in Egypt, it was almost like it's a yard sale and we don't want any of this stuff, take it with you kind of moment. But it's the same idea that God is still going to rebuild his temple with materials from all the nations. And we see that God in verses 7 and 8 is restoring the vessels of the temple that were stolen when Jerusalem fell. And they'll be used in the rebuilt temple and honor God once again. And they were given to Sheshbazar, who's given this title, the Prince of Judah. Right? Now this is title much like governor or chancellor. Right? It, it just really suggests that he is a leader among the people. It doesn't suggest that he's of royal lineage. Uh, it, it's a political title more than anything else. And then in verses 9 and 11, 9 through 11, we see this accounting of all the temple elements uh, to be returned. And, and it looks really odd. Like as you're reading through scripture, this is the kind of the point where you kind of go, 
some people want to go click and kind of turn it off, right? Because it feels like you're reading what is essentially a spreadsheet, right? You've got these, the spreadsheet of here are these bowls and how many of them and these basins and, and there's a spreadsheet in scripture and it feels weird, right? But what it does is it shows that God is faithful. It, it shows that, that he has been faithful in preserving a remnant of people who worshiped him and worshiped him alone through the exile but he has also been faithful to preserve the materials those faithful people will need when they reestablish worship in Jerusalem. God is a God of details. And he remembers the details. And God is also a God of promises. And he has not forgotten his promises. Better yet, what we see here is God has fulfilled those promises. And then Ezra chapter 2 we see the people moving out of Babylon back to Judah. And as the people move back into their homes and reoccupy the land, they see that God has fulfilled his prophecy. Right? We see the leaders are named. The first guy we see named is in is, is Shesh, Shesh Bazar in, in 1.8. And then there are several leading men leading him, or leading with him. And we see that Zerubbabel um, serves as their leader. And he's going to be kind of Within chapters 1 through 6, he's going to be kind of the, the focus leader of the book of Ezra. Um, and then we see also Jeshua, who serves as priest, and he's also kind of given a place of honor as we continue reading through. Uh, Zerubbabel is descended from King Jehoiakim, uh, but we don't really know a whole lot about the other guys named. Now we see some familiar names, though. We see like Mordecai and we see Nehemiah. Um, we know, wait, Ezra and Nehemiah, is this the Nehemiah? This is not the Nehemiah that we're going to see coming up in the book, the book named after him. And this is not the Mordecai that we see in the book of Esther. Um, they're just not the ones that we're familiar with in Scripture. The familiar Mordecai from the book of Esther, that's a little bit later story. And we know from Scripture in the book of Esther that he didn't even return to Judah. So we know that it can't be him. Nehemiah, that has the book named after him, the, the scripture named after him, happens later on, um, within probably 60 to 70 years, almost 100 years, depending upon who's doing the reckoning on that, um, after this group of people begin their journey. So this is not likely to be him either, just because people age and wear out. The people who did return, though, they're divided into some groups here. We see them divided into like ordinary Israelites, and servants of the temple. And the servants of the temple include the priests and the Levites. And God has stirred the hearts of everyone who is necessary for the work of rebuilding the temple and reestablishing the worship of the one true God in Jerusalem. He's got ordinary believers. He's got priests. He's got Levites who are the attendants of the priests. Then he has these special servants who are singers and gatekeepers, and, and they attended to the jobs that the Levites did. And we see that all taking place here. And as the people are divided, they are done either by their families or their ancestral home places. Right? And all of these places and families listed are, are places that are within the territory of, of Judah and Benjamin. Remember, Levites didn't have when they were given their own, when each tribe was given their space within the land of Canaan, the Levites were dispersed amongst all the people because they were to be servants among the people for temple worship. Right? And, and so they're kind of going to be mixed in here. So now, some of these places 
that we see are, are named when God first gave them to the people and first that first march into Canaan during the book of Joshua. Like we see Bethel and Ai, um, we see the plain of Ono, and we see some other places that are named in that book. So God is, is using this to remind his people, and he's using this to remind us as modern readers that he is a faithful God who remembers and fulfills his promises. This is the land that God has given the Israelites. Yes, he removed them from it for a time because of their unfaithfulness to him. But now he's restoring it back in fulfillment of his promise. The temple officials are then all divided up according to their jobs. They're, they're headed by priests and Levites. And the priests are kind of the most important group as they are the ones who are set apart for worship at the altar. And, and we see an emphasis on reestablishing worship. There's more priests by number than Levites returning. That's, there's this idea of establishing and reestablishing proper worship in Jerusalem. The other servants of the temple are the sons of Solomon's servants, and those are the ones who attend to the Levites, and there's laborers for the rebuilding of the temple. And in Nehemiah, we see that there are temple servants, and, and these temple servants are, are people who are named among those who take the covenant oath. That, that says, we will worship and honor our God. And then we get to this interesting part when we get in chapter 2, verses 59 through 63. right? And these are people who have returned, but they, they cannot yet directly tie themselves to, to full Israelite citizenship and to the priesthood. And that's what they want, right? It's important among those returning to establish some credentials here. And, and they want to do that, and that's important. People returning would want to claim land. They'd want to claim an inheritance. They'd want to claim some property. And like, we got to make sure that you're verifiable. Um, you know, it's, we've got the will, but we got to make sure that you're really part of it. So there's no contestants sort of thing going on here. The leaders needed to know what was a legitimate claim and what was not a legitimate claim. And in the case of those claiming priesthood, it was of the utmost importance to get this right, right? The priesthood was established by God of men from a certain pedigree. They had to be descended from Aaron, the brother of Moses. And because of the exile, there's going to be these gaps in the record. And the leaders needed to fill in these gaps. And that takes some time, right? The claims of the people recorded here are not permanently denied necessarily, Right? But they're held over for pen, further pending questioning, further investigation, and then the use of Ummon and Thummon. Ummon and Thummon is this really interesting thing in Scripture. Priests carried them around inside of an inner pocket inside of their uh, phylacteries or whatever you'd call their robes. Right, And if they needed to make a decision, but they didn't know how to make a decision, they would reach in their pocket. Ummon was a yes, Thummon was a no. And they'd reach in their pocket... They were both the same size, both the same shape, but they were different color when they pulled them out. You'd reach in, pull it out. Ah, this is the thumbin. Sorry, that's a no. They'd put it back in their pocket and they'd go about their business. That was how they decided that God was, was making a decision for them that he would do that. And, and that is given to them in Scripture back in Deuteronomy as a way to make decisions. And the reason why this is set up this way is that there's a concern for holiness among these men. Right? And this concern for the holiness is, is for the good of those who are being excluded. 
And we don't think like, we, we like to think in the modern world that exclusion means a bad thing. Here it's not. It's a good thing because the priesthood in ancient Israel were the only people who can draw near to God and worship. They can be close. They can be in that inner sanctum of the, the temple, the Holy of Holies. And if they are not truly priests and they try to draw near to God or make offerings at the altar, the holiness of God could strike them dead. We think of the men when, when they thought the Ark of the Covenant was going to fall as they were carrying it, and they went to try to stabilize and hold up the Ark of the Covenant. They were doing what they thought was a good thing, but God struck them dead because they could not be in the presence of His holiness. And then we see these guys, the sons of Hakaz, and they're mentioned in verse 61. And this is, this is kind of neat to look at them. We want to take them into consideration here because these men sought to honor God and to serve as priests. Their lineage as descendants from Aaron was in question, and they had to wait it out, right? And it appears that some priests somewhere used Ammon and Thummim to determine their legitimacy into the priesthood. Because in Ezra chapter 8 and later on in Nehemiah chapter 3, we show, or the scriptures show us that the sons of Akaz serve in the temple as priests. This means that they had to have someone else step up and do for them something they could not do for themselves. They needed vindication that came from outside themselves. This is us. This, this, is, this is very similar to our circumstances. Right? We're unable to vindicate ourselves today before a holy and just God. We need someone to do it for us. We need a priest to step up and say, it's okay, I will vouch for them. I can do for him what he cannot do. See, our sin has, has disqualified us before God. Jesus lived out a perfectly sinless life, yet died on the cross under the wrath of God. He died the death that, that you and I deserve, not the death he deserved. And he did this all for our benefit. He did it so that when you and I surrender our lives over to him, the penalty he paid is then counted toward us. See, if we place our trust in Jesus Christ, we can serve God and draw near to him without any fear. We can be declared priests in his service. We've seen this. As we're looking here at Ezra chapters 1 and 2, we see that, that God is doing some amazing things. He hardened the heart of Pharaoh back in, back in the book of Exodus. But here God stirred the heart of Cyrus. And we see him letting Israel plunder Egypt and build the tabernacle from those things. But here we see the Babylonians financing and funding the rebuilding of a temple to worship him. There was this mass exodus from Egypt. And now we're seeing this second exodus from Babylon. There's, there's something really beautiful about that. All of these things mirror something coming. We're, we're, as we're, we're going to read through Nehemiah and Ezra, and we're going to find some spots where we think it's a, a, an ending that's, that's going to be spectacular, and then it's the anticlimax. And it's going to happen a few times as we're going through it. But there's this another exodus coming. And everyone who surrenders their life to Jesus 
participates in his exodus. It's all parallels that that is yet to come. See, those who have surrendered their lives to Jesus, they will escape the captivity of sin. And they're going to know the freedom of eternal life in the presence of God. So the question you've got to ask is, will you be a part of the exiles returning home when Jesus comes back? Have you trusted in Jesus? If you say, yes, I've surrendered my life to Jesus, I will experience his exodus from sin, then amen and hallelujah. That is awesome, right? Then you got to go someplace else, though. Then, then in response to what Jesus has liberated you from, you got to stop and you got to think, do I want to be stirred in the way the heads of the families were stirred? Right? When, when, when they came to the house of the Lord, look at what happens in verses 68 and 69 of chapter 2. Some of the heads of the families, when they came to the house of the Lord, that is in Jerusalem, made free will offerings for the house of God to erect it on its site. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury of the work 61,000 derricks of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priests' garments. I'm not saying that, that if you're a believer that, that we're, we're asking you to give up like that, but think about this. As a believer in Christ... Everything has been provided. And because everything has been provided, it kind of makes you want to give more. More of yourself, more of your life. You have had an opportunity to experience God's glory through His grace and through His mercy. And it should make you want to ask, how will I glorify God? Over and over again in this passage, we see our God being faithful. How will you show your faithfulness to him? Let's go to him in prayer. Father, I thank you so much. Thank you so much for your word. I thank you so much for showing your faithfulness to us, showing us that you are a God who fulfills promises. Father, that gives us hope to know that you will fulfill the promise in those of us who have surrendered our lives to Jesus Christ of an eternal life in your presence. I pray, Lord, that, that we can take this, this, this story of you being a God who fulfills promises, and we take that out and we share that for your sake, for your glory, so that others may know they too can experience an eternal life in your presence through Jesus Christ our Lord. Encourage us to do that. Have us ask regularly, how will I show your glory today, God? And it's in Jesus' name.